0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ackman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ackman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. In this particular Issues in Perspective program I want to focus a lot on sound doctrine, particularly as it relates to some very important issues occurring in the church today, because one of the key themes of biblical Christianity is the importance of sound doctrine. The Apostle Paul uses this phrase especially in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus, and the term sound actually in the Greek language means healthy, And from Paul, we learn that sound doctrine is the key to godly living and to spiritual health. It is therefore quite significant to focus on the importance of sound doctrine in this postmodern world. And in this global village, building bridges to Islam is necessary. But how do we do that without compromising the sound doctrine of the Bible, particularly as it relates to Jesus Christ? In this perspective, I seek to probe this very issue. First of all, how does Islam view Jesus Christ? Muhammad, the founder of Islam, was not really very familiar with Christianity nor the Bible. The Quran, the 114 chapters of Archangel Gabriel's revelations to Muhammad, refutes Christian claims that Jesus died on the cross, that he was God's Son, and that God is Trinity. Likewise, the Quran alludes to other beliefs that are, of course, demonstrably false, that Mary was a sister of Aaron and Moses, and that Mary was part of the Trinity. Therefore, Muhammad denied Jesus' deity, his atoning death on the cross, and the Trinitarian nature of God. The Muslim concept of God is summed up in the name Allah. A critical point for Islamic doctrine is the stress on Allah's unity of being. This dominates the Muslim's thinking about God, and is expressed in the phrase, There is no God but Allah. He is absolutely unique and inconceivable. An Islamic proverb says, Whatever your mind may think of, God is not that. A constant phrase repeated in Muslim prayers is, is Allah Akbar. God is great. God is far greater than any thought humans can have of him. Allah is so great that he can do what he likes. He can even break his own laws, if he wishes. In Islam, Allah has decreed all that will occur. He is the creator of all that is in heaven and on earth. His knowledge is perfect, his will is beyond challenge, and his power is irresistible. All these attributes. Omniscient, sovereignty, and omnipotence are evident in his creation. Many pious Muslims carry a rosary that has 99 beads, each one representing one of Allah's names. The 100th is unknown to humans. Known, legend has it, only to the camel. Allah's might and majesty are tempered with his justice. He rewards and punishes, yet... He is merciful, a guardian of his servants, a defender of the orphan, a guide to the wrongdoer, a liberator from pain, a friend of the poor, and ready to forgive master. Allah resides in the seventh heaven, far removed from his creation. He is unknowable, but he has chosen to make himself known through the holy books and through his prophets. These books include the Old and New Testament and the prophets include the prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus. To Islam, Jesus is a prophet. Muhammad is greater than Jesus as a prophet, but he is a prophet. This leads me second, then, to a recent article in Christianity Today, which points out a brewing controversy about current attempts to reach Muslims using certain nuanced translations of key biblical terms or concepts. Christopher Hayes, who's author of that CT article, writes, The Quran explicitly states that God could not have a son. In Arabic, the word is Ibn, I-B-N, translated son of. It carries distinct biological connotations. Muslims reject the possibility that God could have produced a son through sexual relations with Mary. Christians confess that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But this distinction is lost on many Muslims who lack the theological context for understanding nuanced Christian teaching on the Trinity. Close that long quote from Christopher Hayes. In fact, the Quran states quite clearly That anyone who claims that Jesus is the Son of God is blaspheming and deserves to be cursed by God. Muslims not only disagree about the nature of Jesus' relationship with the Father, they call down a curse on anyone who believes Jesus is God's Son. For that reason, translators in a recent couple of translations of the New Testament into Arabic struggle with how to translate Son of God when referring to Jesus. Muslims often will listen to teaching about Jesus as divine, about his crucifixion, and even his resurrection, but react with vitriol when the teaching focuses on him being God's son. For that reason, some translators have suggested that the translation should read, spiritual son of God, or beloved son who comes from God. Is this satisfactory as a translation of Son of God. In his articles, Christopher Hayes writes that certain New Testament scholars, and I'm going to list three of them, Daryl Bach, who teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary, Jack Collins, who teaches at Covenant Theological Seminary, and Vern Poythress, who teaches at Westminster Theological Seminary, doubted that they could condone any alternative in translation to the Son of God. They express sympathy with missionaries who want to dispel mistaken notions held by Muslims, but they found fault with alternatives, particularly using Christ, where Son of God originally appeared. If Son of God and Christ are strict synonyms, they note, then usage of both terms in Scripture is redundant. For example, in Matthew 16, near Caesarea Philippi, Peter did not confess, you are the Christ, the Christ. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The phrase Son of God is revelatory, and to change it is to change the nature, and perhaps even more importantly, the content of the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. Personally, I do not believe we have the freedom nor the authority to change that revelation to accommodate Muslims. One can only imagine what the people of the Greco-Roman world first thought when they heard the gospel of Jesus and they heard discussion, talk, and read in the epistles of the Son of God. With their commitment to anthropomorphic polytheism, Son of God would have seemed strange indeed. God the Holy Spirit will use his word that he has inspired to do its work in conviction of sin and in the need for redemption in the lives of Muslims. He has done this for 2,000 years, and he will not stop doing it now simply because we face the challenge of reaching Muslims for Christ. This is a very difficult issue. I have worked with Muslims, I have talked with Muslims about Jesus, and it is a barrier to in any way talk to him about the Son of God. But it is part of God's revelation, and we do it with care, with shrewdness, to use the words of Jesus in Luke 16, we use it with discernment, but we cannot ignore it, we can't water it down, we can't make it superficial or shallow. It is a part of the revelation of God in Scripture, and we have to be very, very careful, even in our translation, that we do this well, accurately reflecting what God's revelation is declaring. Now, this focus in this particular edition of Issues in Perspective on Sound Doctrine leads, secondly, in our second perspective, to a question, is there a hell? There's quite a stir going on right now about the anticipated publication of Rob Bell's new book, Love Wins, a book about heaven Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived. It is scheduled for release on Tuesday, March the 29th. I have not seen an advanced copy of this book, and therefore I have not read the book. So, I reserve any detailed comment about Bell's new book, the argument, or the content of his book. The publisher's statement adds fuel to the controversy because it seems to hint that in Bell's book, God's love will triumph over his justice, hell is perhaps not what we have been taught, they say. Is Bell going to embrace a universalism in this new book, which means that ultimately everyone will be saved? I do not know. I have not read the book. But we know this. Rob Bell is part of an increasingly controversial emerging church movement, which, broadly speaking, is cultural Christianity, giving less emphasis to sound doctrine, the theme of this edition of Issues in Perspective, and more to being culturally relevant and in tune with all that is going on. I await the publication of Bell's new book before I say anything more specific. However, I believe it is appropriate to follow the theologian Albert Moeller in examining why hell, as a doctrine, is becoming increasingly unpopular in this postmodern culture. Moeller contends that hell, as a place of everlasting punishment, bears that scandal in a particular way. The doctrine of hell is offensive to modern sensibilities and an embarrassment to many who consider themselves to be Christians. Why is hell as a doctrine so unpopular? Why is it so offensive to the postmodern culture? Four reasons. One, the postmodern view of God has changed. The Bible's view of God is too restrictive of human freedom. It's too offensive to this postmodern culture. Recent evangelical revisionists promote an understanding of divine love that is never coercive and would never permit God to send impenitent sinners to eternal punishment. They are seeking to rescue God, Moeller writes, from the bad reputation he picked up by associating with theologians, who for centuries taught the traditional doctrine. God is just not like that, many postmodernists say. A God like that who sends people to hell is, these are words that are often used, vindictive, cruel, more like Satan than like God. God's love always triumphs over his justice, and it is inconceivable that he would send anyone to hell. Second, there is a changed view of justice in the postmodern culture. The concept of justice as retributive justice has been the hallmark of law for over 5,000 years. Retributive justice assumes that punishment is a natural and necessary component of justice. You certainly see that in the Old Testament law, which is also in Hammurabi's code of the ancient world, that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a principle, talionic justice there is a law of retribution. If you violate a law code, there is a punishment that goes with it. But utilitarian philosophers at the back end of the Enlightenment, men like John Stuart Mill, Jeremy Bentham, rejected restorative justice and argued that justice demands restoration. No longer is retributive justice the pattern. Now it's restoring people. Criminals were no longer seen as evil and deserving of punishment, but were seen as persons in need of correction. C.S. Lewis responded to this new definition of justice when he wrote, We demand of a cure not whether it is just, but whether it succeeds. Thus, when we cease to consider what the criminal deserves and consider only what will cure him or deter others, we have tacitly removed him from the sphere of justice altogether." Instead of a person, a subject of rights, we now have an object, a patient, a case. Close that quote. Dutch criminologist Pietor Speerenberg argues, quote, this disbelief in the existence of retributive justice is so widely spread through nearly all classes of people, especially in regard to social and political questions, that it causes even men whose theology teaches them to look upon God as a vindictive, lawless autocrat to stigmatize cruel and heathenish to the belief that criminal law is bound to contemplate in punishment other ends besides the improvement of the offender himself and the deterring of others. Therefore, retribution in this postmodern world is out. Rehabilitation is in. And that has affected our understanding of hell. Third, is the advent of a psychological worldview, and this has affected postmodern understandings of hell. The unintended consequence of some aspects of modern psychology is to deny or to reduce personal responsibility. Various theories in psychology place the blame on external influences, biological factors, behavioral determinism, genetic predispositions, and the influence of the subconscious. And these variant theories barely scratch the surface. The victim mentality has triumphed in many sectors, and it is simply unthinkable that God would hold people accountable and send them to hell. Fourth, the concept of salvation has changed. Sin has been redefined as a lack of self-esteem rather than as an insult to the glory of God. Salvation has been reconceived as liberation from oppression, internal and external. The gospel becomes a means of release from bondage to bad habits rather than a rescue from the sentence of eternity in hell. Rabbi Kimon Holan Sargent holds today's cultural pluralism fosters an underemphasis on the hard cell of hell while contributing to an overemphasis on the soft cell of personal satisfaction through Jesus Christ. Muller concludes in this very powerful statement, The revision or rejection of the traditional doctrine of hell comes at a great cost. The entire system of theology is modified by effect, even if some revisionists refuse to take their revisions to their logical conclusions. Essentially, our very concepts of God and the gospel are at stake, What could be more important? The temptation to revise the doctrine of hell, to remove the sting and scandal of everlasting conscious punishment is understandable, but it is a major test of evangelical conviction. Hell demands our attention in the present, confronting evangelicals with a critical test of theological and biblical integrity. Hell may be denied, but it will not disappear. Close that quote. Dear people, Jesus Christ, in his three years of public ministry, talked more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament. So, if Jesus took hell seriously, we need to take hell seriously. In this postmodern world, with all of our pluralistic, autonomous, and relativistic sensibilities, it's very unpopular. It's offensive to most people. And I suspect, although I cannot guarantee this because I haven't read the book, but I suspect that in Rob Bell's new book, he is going to water down the whole idea of hell. And he's going to focus on the very things I've been discussing in this perspective. A redefinition of God, a redefinition of justice, a redefinition of personal responsibility, and a redefinition of salvation. Watch carefully if that is not exactly what he does in this new book. In our third and final perspective, it will be a brief one. I want to focus on a question, is there good news ...about sexual promiscuity. Issues in Perspective has consistently lamented family breakdown, social disintegration, and the decline of American civilization for several years now. The evidence for all these propositions seems overwhelming. However, a recent study gives a small ray of hope. In early March, the Centers for Disease Control revealed that American teens and 20-somethings are waiting longer to have sex. In 2002, the study reported that 22% of Americans ages 15 to 24 were still virgins. By 2008, that number was up 28%. In addition to these encouraging statistics, a recent book by two sociologists, Mark Regeneris and Jeremy Euchre, called Premarital Sex in America, suggests that among contemporary young adults, There is a significant correlation between sexual restraint and emotional well-being, between monogamy and happiness, and between promiscuity and depression. This correlation is much stronger among women than men, and as columnist Ross Douthat suggests, female emotional well-being seems to be tightly bound to sexual stability, which may help explain why overall, Female happiness has actually drifted downward since the sexual revolution. All of this also challenges the view of planned parenthood, which takes teenage sexual activity for granted and sees as the primary concern only that sex be clinically safe. Dear people, God has established the lines on the tennis court of life. If we choose to step over those lines, there are consequences. But if the culture, including unbelievers, choose to follow his guidelines, even if unbeknownst to them, there will be common grace blessing from God. Perhaps that is what's happening. There's a glimmering hope that the culture is finally coming to its senses when it comes to this matter of sexual promiscuity. This is a small study. It only deals with a group Of people 15 to 25 but the results of this study are encouraging there is growing evidence that some groups of our culture are waiting to have sexual relations until they get married that is one of the lines on the tennis court of life that God has painted and when the culture follows that line God in his common grace will bless Perhaps, and that is a big perhaps. That is what we're starting to see in our culture. May God, in His mercy, speak powerfully through His Spirit to the young people of today, whatever their age, whatever their orientation at this point, to see that those clear lines that God has painted on the tennis court of life are the only ones to follow. May He give strength, may He give enablement. May he help parents, may he help our culture, may he help our entertainers, may he help our political leaders, may he help our financial and economic leaders to all live this way, to see that God's standards are the only standards that we should follow. We have a long way to go as a culture. But perhaps a study like this indicates that our culture is beginning to come to its senses When it comes to personal morality and personal ethics, may God in his mercy continue to give us that kind of enablement, and may this study show even more and more people following that particular standard of how they live their lives. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Eckman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.